0: Hello, everyone. This is Dr. VJ Perry Healthcare Leadership Podcast. Through stories from international healthcare leaders, this podcast will reveal the secrets to becoming a transformational healthcare leader. Our guest today is Dr. Jane DeLima-Thomas. Dr. DeLima-Thomas is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Thank you so much, Jane, for being here with us today and being willing to share your life and your journey. Can you get us started by telling us a little bit about
1: your early career, please? Sure. Happy to. Um, And thank you for the invitation. Um, So I, uh, I'm one of those people who knew that she wanted to be a doctor from very early on. My father says that I was three when I first said it. Um, But I had some real bumps along the way, including um, uh, uh, struggling the first time that I went to college. I went when I was Fairly, when I was younger than standard and failed after one semester and um, left school entirely and uh, was convinced that I didn't want to go to school ever again. And so it took a little while to get back on the horse as it were, and to go back to school. And then I stayed in school for a really long time in order to become a doctor. Uh, and along the way um, did feel like you know, with every step, it was confirming what I knew as a three-year-old and sort of lost my way in between um, that I, I love medicine. And I, it feels like a privilege to to be a doctor.
0: Jane, you mentioned the um, bumps along the way. I don't think I've met a single person who has not uh, encountered many bumps, small and big ones along the way. I know I certainly have. So can you tell us a little bit more about what were the bumps that you encountered and the turning points in your
1: career. So the biggest one was when I went to college at 17, I um, I suffered depression and anxiety and I couldn't go to my classes and I couldn't write my papers um, and I failed out of school. I failed two of my courses. I got a C in another and a D in another. And I was put on academic probation and not permitted to return for a year and I had to, you know, I was required to go to a different school for at least a semester and get grades that would um, allow me to then re-enter college. And I, um, that whole event was so upsetting that when I left school, I decided I never wanted to go back again. And I got a job as a receptionist in an OBGYN department and, uh, and really thought that that's what I would do for some time.
0: Jane, I can't even begin to imagine you
1: not doing well in
0: school. I know how smart you are. I can't imagine that you ended up in the OBGYN office as a receptionist. So thankful that you're not doing that anymore and that you decided to come back to med school. How did that come about? Tell us a little bit more about that. I learned
1: after a year or so that the things that really interested me about that job were things that had to do with the medicine itself and taking care of patients. And it just became very clear that I wasn't gonna be able to do the work that I wanted to do without going back to school first. Um, but that took a, a, a big leap of faith that I would be able to go back to school and um, survive and be able to do my classwork and um, and be able to get through. And it was a struggle. and And the struggle was much more about my confidence and my sort of mental health and being able to, to get my assignments done without anxiety and so on um, than it was about my ability to actually do the work. Um, and so, so coming through that was... Um, Was both a source has been since then a source of both vulnerability and strength. Where I, it's very easy for me to remember that time of struggle, and to connect with that time when I felt so unsure that I would be capable of doing something, and then also a real pride that despite uh, those obstacles and that uncertainty and that you know crisis and confidence and the depression, that I. Made it through.
0: Thank you so much for that story. First of all, that is a true gift. A lot of times, when we think about our colleagues who are incredibly successful, as you are, we always imagine them to be leading charmed lives, right? Meaning they never had any trouble at all. They knew exactly what they are supposed to do. They always got it right the first time. And they landed up where they are being incredibly successful without any challenges. at least reflecting on my own journey, I know the exact opposite to be true. Uh, you end up having, you know, challenge, 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 failure, 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 and then a little bit of success, and then you fail again, and a little bit of success. So I, I think the biggest issue is picking up ourselves from those really dark moments and getting back on track and uh, having the motivation to succeed. So clearly, that's what you've done. How does one do that? What, what did you do?
1: One is um, a key to my ability to pick myself up and and move on, both after that event um, when I failed out of school and then a subsequent really hard time that I went through when I um, went through a divorce. And in both cases, I needed outside help. I needed a therapist, I needed a counselor um, to be able to talk through what was happening with me and have a safe space that was outside of work and outside of my family um to to regain my balance and get some perspective and get some tools uh to to be able to deal uh, with you know the struggles i was having um i think an important thing that I learned was the idea that we spend a lot of time comparing our insides to other people's outsides. And the idea that the chaos sometimes that we feel inside or the uncertainty or the sadness or the, or the um, insecurity or that self-criticism, all of those things, we know and we feel intensely inside. And we don't see that struggle in other people because it's happening on their inside. I
0: really like this concept of Uh, outside self versus inside self and how we work really hard to live sort of picture style lives, right? Where everything is perfect. And whereas internally, sometimes, you know, you feel uh, a little despondent, you feel pretty lonely. And so I really like that concept. And especially when you're in a place like Harvard or Stanford or any of the uh, Ivy League schools, for example, everyone around us is so smart and therefore you can feel pretty intensely lonely. What has been your sense in terms of managing the inside versus outside self, and how does
1: one still keep our morale up? All we see is their ability to do their work, take care of their patients, write their papers, give their talks. And it took me a while to understand that that was happening with me as well. People were seeing from the outside that I seemed to be succeeding in various ways, Um, and uh, didn't know about some of the crises that were happening sort of behind my face or inside and, and at home. Um, and so to, for me to have lived that, I, I keep that very much in mind, both um, when I have those, those times when I feel like I'm not accomplishing what I'd like and that I'm, I'm falling behind in some way. I remember that.
0: Jane, we know that people who go into medicine are ultra-competitive. First, you have the MCAT and you have to score better than everyone else. And then you have step one, two, three. You have the various residency, fellowship, et cetera. Overall, when you end up in academia, uh, the environment is ultra competitive. And of course, it draws the brightest and the best. Okay. But we also know that all this competition comes at a terrible price. People feel that it's a zero-sum game. People feel um, really terribly lonely. So I think that academia really needs to be significantly changed in order for it to be a really nurturing environment. Uh, So would you agree with that, first of all? And what, according to you, are changes that we should see in making this a better place for everyone?
1: My feeling is that the, the paths to recognition and success need to be both broadened and multiplied where people of vastly different talents and abilities and skills and experience can come into academia and thrive and be recognized for who and who they are and what they bring um, and be given opportunities to advance, be given opportunities to lead, even if what they're, uh, the, what they're engaged in and the accomplishments they have are not the ones that are traditionally measured as metrics of success.
0: I agree with you completely. I think we have this publish or perish mentality. If you're not prolific and continuously prolific, you're not going to thrive in this environment.
1: Would you agree? Looking much more broadly than simply at number of publications or you know, editorial board um, uh, memberships or international talks or impact factor, um, that the idea that that scientific impact and um, is held in such high regard as the, the gold standard for how faculty efforts are measured and sort of compared against, when in reality, if we're truly to embrace the idea that a wide variety of faculty efforts are needed in order to meet the missions of academic medical centers, Um, then we have to really be creative in how we reward those efforts and not be quite so narrow in our definitions of accomplishment and success.
0: Think about all the academic medical centers in the country. They are in the business of training future doctors. One could even metaphorically say that academic medical centers are the birthing place of all the doctors in the nation. And we hold in our hands the health of the future nation, right? Because this is where the doctors come from and they go forth and so on. So what needs to change? What are the urgent priorities according to you?
1: I would think of it as in two two approaches. One is to think about the current um, metrics that are used in thinking about whether a faculty member is ready for promotion and to really broaden those metrics. So for example, in some institutions, um, publications are counted and podcasts are not. There's a, there's a way that, um, showing expertise and getting the word out, uh, some methods are rewarded and others are thought to be, you know, not substantial enough in some way. Um, and I think we have to, we have to think more broadly about what it is that counts as it were, as we're thinking about, uh, faculty approaching promotion and really expand our sense of what should be counted and what's rewarded. But I also think that there will be faculty who don't necessarily go up for um, academic promotion, but who maybe may have terrific leadership skills.
0: What I'm inferring from what you're saying is that the way we set up um, appointment and promotions really needs to change. The promotion ladder needs to be reinvented and made better. Am I hearing that correctly?
1: And I think so it's both that we want to, you know, if we think about a ladder, a promotion ladder and going up a promotion ladder that we want to make that ladder wider and and sort of accommodate more kinds of um, uh, faculty efforts in order to have people promoted. But I also think we need to build more ladders and that there are lots of positions in academia that are restricted by academic rank where I think in some cases there's no there's no need that that, that need to happen that way there's no um, there's nothing that really correlates with someone's academic success and therefore their ability to lead a division or a department um, you know if there are others who are not as academically focused who have those leadership skills so I guess you know again it's a twofold answer it's to make it possible for more people who are engaged in a wider variety of efforts to achieve promotion. And then it's also to think about the very talented faculty who may not be on an academic path, but have strong leadership skills and making sure that they have a way to use those leadership skills and not have that uh, that talent go untapped.
0: Okay, this is my cue to ask you to tell us a little bit about your leadership style.
1: So my leadership style is um, uh, so, you know, I have a fairly particular set of talents, uh, as a leader and I, and I have a wide variety of, um, areas where I can improve or, or, um, and I'm not going to call them weaknesses, but areas where I could improve. So my strengths are that I, I love thinking about what makes people Like what lights them up? What talents do they have? What kind of work do they enjoy doing? What are they good at? And I do a lot of thinking about that. And I love thinking about how people are wired and what sort of what motivates them and what allows them to come at the end of a day or a week and say, I did work that I really loved. It had an impact. It matches my values. It matches my skill set. So I, I love to think about those things and, and even how those things change over time as people's careers develop and their interests change and they, they want to do, grow into different things.
0: Thank you so much for describing your leadership style. And uh, I've known you for a long time and it's so true in terms of how you described it. Jane, I've known you for a long time and I know that you are an introvert, which is why it's remarkable to me how as an introvert, you have put yourself in the center of your team, and you've been working so hard to advance your team. Not exactly what one would imagine an introvert doing and thriving. What exactly is your secret?
1: I don't experience it as a paradox. I experience it as um, my team is part of my inner circle. These are people that I care deeply about. That I I know fairly well some of them I know very well some of them I've known for years and years and and we've grown up together professionally and others are are ones that I've I've helped grow up professionally and um uh it feels like you know for an introvert there can feel like a wall where there's the inside and the outside and my my team is on the inside (laughs) And so, um, and, and that isn't to say that sometimes after a day of work and interacting with my group that I don't have to go home and, and take a rest. Um, but for the most part, and this is what's so striking about, um, about my, my group and sort of my relationships with them is that they enliven me, they inspire me, they make me grateful to do the work I do. They make me grateful that I get to work with these extraordinary human beings
0: The pandemic has totally disrupted how we go about doing business, how we work, how we live. And with that, I think, comes great opportunity. We have now the unique opportunity as a nation to reimagine how we go about doing our business in academic medicine, maybe take a look at our mission statement and redo it all over again. Would you agree? And what should that mission statement look like if we were to change it?
1: I think one of the biggest problems facing academic medical centers is that the mission statements, which often include elements having to do with investing in the health of communities that the, where the academic centers are, are geographically placed, talking about educating the next generation of clinicians, um, talking about uh, you know advancing science um, uh, and clinical innovation, that you know, usually a mission statement for an academic medical center is more than simply to advance science. It's usually much, it's more multifaceted than that. It has to be. And yet um, I feel like the reward system has, does not match those institutional priorities. And so faculty get confused because they may be extraordinary educators and yet that isn't rewarded the same way Uh, investigation and publishing about science is rewarded. And that disc or someone may do extraordinary work in the community and improve health indices in various ways in the community where a medical center is located. Um, And and that may or may not be rewarded at all in terms of not only academic promotion, but leadership opportunities.
0: Am I hearing that the academic medicine mission statement does not embrace the diverse interests of various faculty or am I overstating my case here?
1: And I, I think it's that mismatch between what's stated and the rhetoric we hear and then the lived reality of diverse faculty um, and, and how the message and the reality don't match that leads to dissatisfaction, burnout, confusion, Um, uh, insecurity, self-criticism, I think that that mismatch does a lot of harm. And I think that we can be very creative in thinking about how to make those more closely aligned um, so that we are actually rewarding what we say our mission is. Um, And that requires creativity and that does require reimagining what you know, what academic medical centers focus on, what they focus on to to, um, evaluate faculty accomplishments, um, and it forces a real uh, looking at it, turning it upside down, opening it up, um, and um, building it differently to incentivize what we we say we want our faculty to be doing.
0: That's really well stated, Jane. Uh, What you are asking for is authenticity that our mission statement reflects all parts of what we do not just the discovery and uh, the research but all the other collective missions that work together thank you so much for articulating that so well and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today uh, it was so fun to talk to you thank
1: you BJ. hugs to you yeah hugs back
0: Thank you for joining us today. For more leadership podcasts, visit us at respect.stanford.edu.